check. On this episode, we interview Paralympian Amanda Everlove. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and I am super excited about today's episode, um, especially given the current uh, anticipation of the um, Olympics and uh, Paralympic Games starting soon this summer. Um, we have a, uh, a Paralympian who's also a pharmacist on the show. Welcome, Dr. Amanda Everlove. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. So I'm been really looking forward to this because I have so many questions about all things, um, you know, swimming and um, being a Paralympian, and I'm just really curious about a lot of things. So I'm, I'm, I do want to, you know, without like rushing to all the yeah. <laughs> crazy <laughs> questions that I have, uh, let's first start it slow and just maybe give us a quick introduction to yourself. Tell us about like what you do currently, where you work, and things like that. Yeah, I currently work as a retail pharmacist for a big chain, uh, but I'm also part-time at a children's hospital, mostly working in the IV room there. So I get to use a few different skills. Um, you know, retail pharmacy is a very different world from a hospital pharmacy. So it's nice to experience both. Um, I currently live in Columbus, Ohio with my husband and three dogs and a cat. So um, they might make an appearance, but hopefully not. Hopefully they stay quiet. So how does, tell me about the dog cat, um, experience. Like how w- did you have one before the other? How do they all get along? What's that like? Yeah. So when I met my husband, he had two dogs, I had a cat and then, you know, things got started to get serious. We moved in <laughs> together and we were very concerned because one dog is a rat terrier. The other one's a pit beagle mix. So he definitely has that like prey drive. And we didn't, we took honestly a couple months to introduce the cat and the dogs. Mm-hmm. And the funny part now is that the Beagle Pit, he likes the cat. He doesn't really care. And the uh, Rat Terrier is terrified of the cat because the cat just tortures this dog. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> we were really worried that she would be the aggressive one. And then it turns out the cat like likes to, if the dog goes to jump, the cat will like swipe her feet at like, the feet from underneath her and um it's it actually worked out really well but we were it took some training and getting used to yeah interesting well that's yeah definitely curious to hear you know um it's always fun to hear about them I, I remember like one time i i had a dog and i think I, I had this thing as a kid like where i just like to bring animals home like if i saw an animal like and i, and I knew <laughs> and i saw that it was clearly lost i'm like i need to bring this thing home and like give it food i think i brought home like, like a, a kitten once unfortunately which we luckily Aww. had rescued but like the funny thing is, is the kitten was not having being around any other, any other dog. Like it was all <laughs> super nice, but it just started like swiping when, when it got introduced mm-hmm. to a dog. So anyway, anyway yeah. All right. So, uh, all right. So interesting. Uh, thank you for kind of giving an intro to yourself. Now let's talk about, um, let's talk about swimming. How did you, how did you get into swimming? Let's talk, let's go all the way back to the origin stories there. Yeah, this is what I call like a, the longest relationship of my life um started swimming when i was a kid so as a kid we lived in southern california and purely as a safety thing my parents put me in swim lessons because every neighborhood has a pool every other house has a pool just purely safety 
And then we moved neighborhoods. And so I had to make a whole new group of friends. And so as a way to make friends, my parents put me on to a summer league swim team, which are, they're just fun. Like you get the kids that are competitive, but you get the kids that aren't. You hang out on every Saturday for a swim meet. The whole neighborhood's there. It's just a lot of fun. Um, and then from there, I actually had an accident when I was eight years old. I paralyzed my right arm. And as a way of, um, one form of therapy was hydrotherapy. And so I'd go do workouts or exercises in the water with a therapist because it's low gravity. And so I was able like minuscule movements that are hard with gravity I could do in the water. And what happens when you put a swimmer into a pool is we don't really know how to have fun. We swim laps, mm-hmm. um, which is a hard concept for people who aren't swimmers. Like I don't know how to go to a pool and have fun now. Um, but then like if I would get bored, I'd start swimming laps. So it was my therapist who encouraged me to get back onto a swim team. And so from there, I just swam for fun, um, was always very competitive, but, um, didn't discover she had talked to me about the Paralympics, but at that point, my injury was a little too fresh. And I definitely thought like my arm is going to come back. I'm going to get all this ability back. I'm not disabled. And it wasn't really until my teenage years that it really sank in. Like I might get some movement back, but it's, it's not coming back. Like nerve damage is nerve damage. And, um, when you rub like tear or rupture or strain your entire brachial plexus, like it's just not coming back. Um, and I think my dad saw how frustrated I was since now I was racing against at this point, you get to high school and it's people who are more serious and are not just splashing around to have fun in the summer. And he uh, told me about the Paralympics. So I don't know if he had gone on to do a search and find other options or what it was. And so I went to my first um, para meet when I was 15 and was like, I I can do this. Like, this is great. And so from there, um, started seriously training and then going to two Paralympic games. So I was a competitive swimmer. If you count from kindergarten up through when I retired 17 years. Um, a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Um, so the, uh, the longest and most emotional probably relationship of my entire life to date. I can imagine. And, you know, sorry to hear about the injury. I mean, one thing that, that comes to mind, just hearing the story is there was a quote that I found, um, from Bradley Snyder, I believe that. Oh, I know Brad. So he had the quote, that's what I'm sure you you know, this quote, Olympians show you what the human body is capable of. Paralympians show you what the human spirit is capable of. And I think that yeah. just kind of goes to like your story. And I think it's, yeah. you know, it's amazing. Brad is a very good speaker. <laughs> if you ever get a chance, you should listen to him. Um, and he's gotten to experience uh, swimming on, I don't want to say both sides, but he was a collegiate swimmer for the Naval Academy and then lost his eyesight in, I believe, Afghanistan and then became a Paralympian. So he's competed at high levels um, on the able-bodied side, but then went on to win, oh, I think a couple of gold medals, um, in Paralympics. So yeah, he's, uh, not to make a bad pun because he's blind, but he has seen both sides Mm. of it. Now, how, how does you, being that you decided, okay, you want to compete, even obviously this might've been before this, but how do you, how does one athlete choose a, a, a swimmer specifically how do you choose a specific race because there's so many different types of swimming so like i guess 
do you have a unique story? Is it is it similar across athletes in terms of how they choose their own race? Like give give us some some insight there. Yeah. So the general kind of consensus with swimming is that you don't choose your event. The event chooses you. Um, the, we tend to separate people out into categories of sprinter or distance swimmer or breaststroker or backstroker. But in reality, um, a lot of you, when you train, once you get more specialized and you kind of get your events, you do start specializing your training more. But as a kid, everyone's doing the same workouts. And so you ideally, um, having also coached a little bit and seeing kids swim and get into the sport, um, you honestly just have people swim everything. Um, when you're a kid, you go to your summer league swim team, everyone's swimming 25s. There's no real distance events there, but you get to YMCA or club swimming or high school swimming and you get more variety there. So typically what will happen is coaches will just have you swim all the events. And then the one that you're best at and you, um, kind of take to a little bit more Mm -hmm. tends to be the one that you stick with. So you don't, some people get to be a little choosier if they are good at a wider variety or a specific thing. But most of us feel like we kind of we found one that we were better at early on than others and that kind of stuck. So for me, I discovered fortunately slash unfortunately that butterfly I was good at. <laughs> uh, nobody wants to be good at butterfly. You just <laughs> kind of are, or you aren't. Uh, similarly, I will joke that I can do most of the strokes pretty well, except I just barely like I get through breaststroke. Um, so I will say breaststrokers are kind of their own breed. So why why is that? I think part of it is that the other three strokes, so freestyle backstroke and butterfly are a longer stroke in that you are always moving forward. But if you swim breaststroke badly, you can actually move backwards a little bit. Oh, geez. (laughs) And yeah, and it takes like a certain kind of like hip and ankle mobility that I no matter how much yoga I do, I will just never have. Uh, I can't figure out how breaststrokers go forward so quickly and never go backwards. Because when I I've gotten better or I got better there towards the end of my career. But yeah, breaststroke, it's very possible to actually go backwards when you're racing which is not the case with the other one. So I don't know if that's what sets it apart, but mm-hmm. it's, I, I wish I was better at breaststroke, but I'm not. <laughs> now I, I, that it kind of goes into a question I had about like, what was the, what is like the hardest type of swimming event? Um, would you say that maybe mechanically that's the most complicated, but would you also consider it to be like the hardest race event or would you answer that differently? If I were to ask, like without knowing what, what you just kind of went through with the breaststroke, What's the hardest type of swimming event and, and why? What, what would that answer be? Um, I think for me, I would say, well, it's going to vary by person because what's difficult for some people isn't difficult for others. Like you'll look at Katie Ledecky and you'll see her distance freestyle races and you would think that that's somehow normal or easy to do. And as someone who my coaches didn't even bother putting me in distance freestyle events because they didn't want to spend all day there. Uh, distance freestyle for me would be the hardest, but 
I would say if I had to just pick a category, I would actually just pick two hundreds of any stroke because it's like a very long sprint or a very short distance. And I've always found that like that mid distance is the hardest. Um, and I think most people would agree with me that have swam like a 200 butterfly or 200 backstroke, 200 breath, any of the 200, 200 IM. I came out of every single 200 IM swearing that I was never going to do it again. And I, I still did. But <laughs> so I think if I had to pick one, it would be just any of the 200s uh, just because they, there's, you know, like I said, that mid distance, the extended sprint or really fast distance you it's hard to get into a groove and keep it and stay fast mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense i mean i i ran track in high school which i was which was a horrible idea like i should i only, <laughs> I only did that because my football coach made me and it was i was like last to second to last every race but you there's definitely clearly differences between lengths of races and you know in terms versus like a 100 meter sprint versus like a 400 800 that kind of thing so i imagine it's very similar in, in water yeah for, i i do not run at all um, unless I'm either being chased or I do orange theory. So like you can maybe get me with some interval training on a treadmill. Um, but from what I've seen of races, yeah, like there's very much like, yeah, most people could probably survive a hundred. Um, you might not be very fast, but you could survive it pretty easily. But those mid distance races just sound brutal. Yeah. Now, kind of sticking on like the the training and maybe I guess competing at like this high level, was there a time that you, you know, you know, you mentioned like your dad had kind of mentioned it at some point. You know, it, it was on your radar to, um, you know, to compete in the in the Paralympics. But was there a time that you maybe like really decided, okay, this is definitely what I want to do, or maybe it was like in your train? Was there a time where you realized that you were like, you know, you were you were going to be someone that was going to be competing at this high level like can you give us maybe some more insight into like what that experience was like for you and maybe help someone else that might be in a similar position where they decide they want to compete at such a high level but you know maybe like stuck somewhere yeah absolutely so that first para uh para swim meet that i mentioned uh for me was portland oregon of 2005 and it well first i went into it thinking like, or not really think, I just didn't really know what to expect. I had no reference. I honestly didn't know very many people with disabilities because at my high school, I can't even think of another person. I met someone else in my town at that point, Jarrett Perry, who was missing his, I believe one of his legs. And he'd actually won um, the state of Kansas backstroke races uh, at least one year, if not two. Uh, missing his leg, no aids or anything like that. So at least I had somebody kind of in my town, but I didn't really know a lot of people with disabilities. So part of it was going and just being exposed to all the different types of different disabilities. Cause we all have this idea of like wheelchairs or blind or amputees. And obviously those are all very represented, but even within wheelchairs, you've got people who are paraplegics, people with cerebral palsy, um, I have a friend from swimming who she is a uh, little person. She has a, she's, but she's not a chondroplasia. So the one that we typically think of with the long torso, shorter limbs, higher forehead, she has a very short torso, very long limbs, and it's led to hip problems. And so she's in a wheelchair. So she can walk around a little bit. She just can't do it for long distances. Um, 
cerebral palsy, all different types of amputations. Um, like I said, my right arm is paralyzed, so it's still there, but it doesn't work. Uh, various levels of blindness. So you've got the swimmers that are completely blind and they either have to swim with blacked out goggles or they have to prove that they have, say, prosthetic eyes um, to um, people who are 2200 to best correction, I believe is what the classification is for the S13s. And so uh, to give a little background on Paralympic swimming, this is gonna vary from every Paralympic sport. So this is very specific to swimming, but what they do is you go to your first meet and you get classified based on your disability as to who you should be competing against. And so there's been a lot of movement and um, adjustments to the classification system, especially in the last quads, the last four years. But they tried to both match disabilities, but also uh, just general function. So that because there's there are other people with the brachial plexus injuries, I'm not the only one, but it would be a very small pool of athletes if I only raced against other girls who had a paralyzed arm. And so you go in, you get classified, and you're given essentially a number from one to 10 based on how able you are. So one being the least able, 10 being the most able. And so there um, understandably aren't very many ones. There are some, but um, it is harder for people on that end of the spectrum to have access to the water, to feel comfortable in the water, and to develop um, swimming skills. But they are there. And then from the tens, um, those are typically athletes that are maybe missing a foot, um, my very minor cerebral palsy, very minor nerve damage that gives them some weakness, but otherwise they compete at a very high level. They can compete on division one swim teams. They can go to state. Typically they're very, very, very fast. Now uh, you, you had mentioned this, the one to 10 category. Does that mean mm -hmm. there's, one there's 10 races or is there less no okay it gets even more broken up so um well so they're so one to ten and then there's actually 11 through 13 are the visually impaired and then s14 are the intellectually disabled um so then within that i'm for example i'm an eight and so there are classifications for freestyle butterfly and backstroke are all considered the s class and then you get a classification for your IM race. That's your SM class. And then you actually get a different classification for your breaststroke race, which is the SB class. So you'll hear things at meets like I'm at eight straight across, or if someone has a leg injury, it's common for them to go down a class for either their IM or their breaststroke, but be a higher class. So it, it gets a little funky um, with that. And then within each class, you have all those races. So when you watch Paralympic swimming, you might see 10 different 100 freestyle races. Um, what they will do is below a certain point, they do shorten some of the races. So I believe it's the S5s and below, maybe the S4s and below they do 150 IM instead of a 200. So they take out the butterfly requirement uh, because that's very difficult for a lot of the lower classes to do because it's hard to get maybe both arms out of the water or move in that direction. And they'll also shorten races. So where the S8 or S6s and above have a 400 freestyle, 
S5s and below will do a 200 freestyle. And so their things are very comparable, but yeah, each class has their own set of races. And so the swim meets can be very, very, very long. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it sounds like there's a lot of, um, a lot of different races that happen. So it sounds like that, that wouldn't make sense. Now, I remember recently there was a, you know, it, it kind of went viral, I guess, a video of a track runner who was um, running with. Uh... Oh, Jerome. Yeah, yeah. So does it, so obviously, like, you know, there's a there's a paired sort of team effort there that's that's happening like in the actual race. Is there anything similar to that that happens in swimming as well? Or are there other sports that maybe you might be able to like that come to mind that you could highlight where like there's a similar sort of um, kind of team effort in the uh, in the event? Yeah, so in swimming, it's a very individual sport. So I'd say the two things that kind of come closest to that is our blind athletes. So if you're the S13 class, so the, like the ones that are best corrected to legally blind, uh, they don't need what are called tappers. But if they're, you've got the S11s like Brad Snyder, who you mentioned earlier, uh, they can't see the wall. So they have to rely on a coach to tap them with a pole. Usually it has a tennis ball or some kind of foam end to it. it they tap them on the head and that's how they know when to flip or when the wall is coming up. But so that way they have that, but they don't really have someone that necessarily like guides them to the wall. Um, the other thing I'd compare in swimming at least is our relay races. What they do is they give you a total number of points and then you can use any variety of those to make a team. And so there's the, I believe it's the 27 point relay and 34 point relay. So with the 34-point relay, you could do like three S10s and an S4 or, you know, kind of seven, I think seven, eight, nine, ten 10 was a really common one for a while, um, picking your fastest swimmers for that, but within your limitations of points. So that's, um, those are always fun to watch because every team has different abilities and different classifications that are fast at different strokes. And so it's fun to watch those get put together. Um, but as far as other sports, I know cycling has what's called tandem cycling. So the blind athletes will ride a tandem cycle with a guide. And so the guide is sighted and similar to track and field, uh, you mentioned it is, um, Jerome Avery is the guide and I forget the athlete that he guides, but I mean, he is, he has to be, he has to train and be very fast on his own. It's similar with cycling. The guide, they're, they're called pilots um, for cycling are, some of them are on national teams for able-bodied and then they work with blind athletes uh, to ride the, um, the bike together, the tandem bike and do that. And I would say, those are the ones I know of. Most other things have been adapted to for more independence. There is a Paralympic sport, sport called goalball, which is very unique. And the athletes are all blind. They all wear blindfolds. And they there's a ball that goes across the court, but it has a bell in it. And mm. so that's how they get around. Similarly, there is blind soccer. And so they there's a bell in the ball. Um so they all work as a team. So there are other team sports, but swimmers tend to be a very independent bunch. So that's really interesting. So what is the the? Can you? I don't know if you might know, but what is the premise of the? You said it was gold ball. This is the first time I'm hearing that. Yeah, gold ball. It's um, 
kind of like if uh, it's played on a court that's about the size of a basketball court, but it's kind of like if soccer was played with your hands rather than your feet. And so they are usually sitting as um, on their respective sides of the court, passing, like trying to pass it to the other side to get it into a net. And you will see athletes kind of throw themselves in front of the ball to stop it because they can hear it coming. More than that, I don't know the exact details of it, but it is a very unique sport. And now that NBC is broadcasting more Paralympics, I would say that's one to watch out for since it's not well known, but it is fun. It's also one of those that's, if you are able to find anywhere nearby that has it or has an ex- like what's called a Paralympic experience, that one's fun to try because you just put on a blindfold and then try to catch these the ball as it goes past you and let me tell you, your sense of hearing is not what you think it is. You will not be able to block these balls. I feel like I would do terribly in that game, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, they they make it look very easy, but it is very, very difficult. (laughs) I can imagine. I can only imagine. Now, you had mentioned um, some of the classifications involving um, intellectual disabilities. So I think this is a good time to maybe ask uh, about, maybe for some that may not know, uh, the difference between the Special Olympics and the and the Paralympics. Can you give us um, can you give us a breakdown as, of what the differences are between those two events? Yeah, for my um, understanding, I've done years ago some volunteering with Special Olympics. With the Special Olympics, it is primarily geared towards those with intellectual disabilities who might also have physical disabilities, but the intellectual disability is the bigger part there, and it is more a celebration, I don't know if celebration is the right word, but an experience for everyone to come together and have fun and uh, not just play games because they have swimming races, but for everyone to have a good time and feel very included as they should everywhere, but especially there. And at the higher levels, it does become more competitive. But on your most basic level, it's more about inclusion and having fun. And Paralympic swimming is more a Paralympic sport is more about competition. So the para in Paralympics actually doesn't come from paralyzed. It comes from alongside. So the idea Mm -hmm. was that it would be alongside the Olympics and compared to the Olympics of you know, the best athletes in the world, they just have to not have to, but they compete against each other, but they are athletes with disabilities, but it's that high level of sport. And so there is now an intellectual disability category in swimming. It was not there for a lot of years, uh, but it's been added back in. And so again, with that, the focus is very much on winning and training and going very like the these swimmers are very fast um so there's we've been working over the years to include uh the intellectual disability class because they are very fast they deserve to be included some of them even have physical disabilities uh but there for a while there was a very distinct separation and now paralympics does include it but again the focus is on the competition the highest yes highest mm-hmm. level of sport that makes a lot of sense. So what's the uh, now just 
thinking about being, you know, competing at such a high level, like what was the training like? You know, how how intense was it? You know, does I, I guess for people that don't realize how um, how intense, you know, being an elite athlete is like, can you give us some insight into what like the training was like and what the regimen was like when you were you know at the height of the of your competition? Yeah, it is. You actually kind of I meant to touch on this earlier with a different question, but I so I went to that first meet in July of 2005 and then it was 2007 and I was training with my club team and I think my dad I don't know if he just had this intuition or what but there was this new program at that time starting up at the Olympic then Olympic Training Center now US Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs to train para swimmers um towards Beijing so 2008 and I like to tell this story because my dad was like, yeah, you should apply. I really like think this will be good for you. And my mom only let me apply because she thought I wouldn't get in because I was 17. <laughs> Shout out to your dad. He seems like he's the driver behind a lot of this. So. <laughs> yes, yes. My I come from a very athletic family. My dad loves sport. My older brother played college football. And so my dad very much was like, nope, I think this is an option. I think you should pursue it um, helped me find these avenues that I probably would not have found on my own, That's awesome. but I did get into this program. So I actually spent my senior year of high school living at the U S Olympic and Paralympic training center, training 20 to 30 hours a week. And we trained every single morning from seven to 9 AM. And then we trained Monday through Friday, every afternoon for an hour and a half. And every Saturday morning, and then mixed in there, we did weight training three days a week. On and then the other three days that we trained, we would usually do a minimum of thirty minutes of core exercises, either before the second practice of the day or Saturday. Sometimes we would do it after, and just the combination of the volume of training of just training that many hours. In addition to having very specialized coaching, we had very good coaches. We had very good weight trainers who, you know, you actually, you train swimmers differently than you would train a wrestler um, or some of the other fencers, some of the other sports that lived um, also there at the lived and trained at the US Olympic and Paralympic training center. And so we got this very specialized training and, it's one of those where now as an adult, I'm always tired. And sometimes people around me be like, well, I wasn't tired when I was a teenager. And I'm like, I, I was, <laughs> I just, I still have two hours in the morning to go, go back, take a nap and then train two hours that afternoon. So I guess I've always been like this. Mm. Um, and then now I do two workouts a week and I'm toasted. So like, <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to imagine where I started to where I've gotten to, but uh, there, there was a time in my life when that was a reality. And then I lived there for a few years. Um, my training there got me from, I think my best ranking at the time was, oh, I want to say about sixth in the world um, to Beijing, where I set a world record and won three silver medals. That is such so, a boss move. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, how, it was. Uh, how does that feel? I mean, you, the best in the world. Yeah. Like, that is insane yeah. to think about. Yeah. And so the caveat with that is I broke the world record in the morning in prelims. And then in finals, I went a little bit slower, which is how I didn't come home with a gold medal. Um, I've had 
13 years to explain this. <laughs> uh, but that world record stood for three years. And so it was, it's exciting. And I like looking back at that time. Um, another story that I like to tell that my mom hates all these stories um, is that I'd already won the 100 butterfly silver medal and I'd won a 200 IM silver medal. And then my very last race of the entire meet in Beijing, I kind of like barely squeaked into finals. But the part about that is that it was a 50 freestyle. And so in reality, everybody squeaks into finals because it's a very short race. The window of making it into finals is very small. And my parents, because they thought in their minds, I just squeaked in, there was no way I could win a medal. They did not bring a camera. And this oh is back God. in 2008 when nobody had smartphones, like the iPhone had just come out. And so there are no phones. You had to carry like a, you know, a little point and shoot with you or, you know, the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. They didn't bring anything. And then I went a silver medal. No. <laughs> so they were asking the like team USA parents around them to take pictures. <laughs> and I don't know funny. if I ever got them. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, well, and then they had to like walk home in the rain and they were just, but they're like, it's raining. We don't even care. We didn't expect this. That's amazing, though. I mean, you know, luckily, you always, you know, those memories will always be there. I'm sure the pictures exist somewhere, um, but, you know, can't take away that experience from you, though. Exactly. Oh, I remember it very clearly, yeah. so it's fine. Um, and so from there, I trained, but I knew that swimming was a shorter term. Not shorter term, but I knew it wasn't going to be like a lifelong career. And so I was always very focused on school. And I had originally thought that I would be done after Beijing. I could go to Beijing, do whatever I would do at Beijing, and then be done. And then I won three silver medals and went, well, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm pretty good at this. <laughs> yeah. I think I'll try for London. It's only four years away. And a lot happened in that four years. But one thing that happened is in 2011, I got accepted to pharmacy school. So I went to Ohio Northern, which is a 06 program. And so... I actually trained my P1 and half of my, or a P1 going into my P2 year there um, for London. And so I actually missed like my first month of school um, my second year there because I was in London. And so I was like trying to log on to, you know, this is, you know, nowadays people are like, oh, just zoom in. And then I was like trying to Skype yeah, in. Back then. Yeah. Yeah. Tough. Yeah, and like trying to coordinate the timing, and I had friends in some classes, but other ones I didn't. So um, somehow I got through it, but it. So I had the training, um, swam college. So I can say I've, I've swam every level of swimming there is, which is fun. Here I am complaining about pharmacy school <laughs> not having to go to London <laughs> to train for you know an elite high level <laughs> competition. Yeah. That's so insane. I mean, oh. yeah. I, mean, yeah. That I got, is, I got yeah. lucky again. It was my first, like there was zero six program. So it was more the like, what most people would be doing is pre farm, but still coming back and trying to figure out what the heck was going on in organic chemistry yeah, was probably my, <laughs> pretty sure organic chemistry was a lot harder than some like classes in pharmacy school, I would say. Right. Um, yeah. Organic was, was, was tough, especially cause it's like your first, you know, intro to like what real hard school, schoolwork is you know um, exactly people don't usually go through that before organic so um but and that's extremely um impressive um to know that you were you know going through college and also competing at a high level i mean that's that's wild yeah yeah it was fun it was but also very exhausting so then 
I swam out my college season. So 2012, 2013, and then February, 2013 is when I retired. Um, I wanted more time to study. Um, I thought that would give me more time to study. I'm not sure that it did, but, um, cause I, I had a lot of teammates who were college or, uh, were pharmacy majors that swam all four years, which I just can't fathom. Um, but it, and swimming kind of got me there. The college, the coach I had there uh, was a national team coach and had been for years. And she coached, uh, she coached at Northern for about, I think, a little over 10 years. And so it was good because it got, I got a coach that I knew and really liked and could help me get to London and knew what it required and knew what to look for with my training specifically. And then I also had pharmacy school. So then I was able to retire move on to a career instead of um, kind of a lot of people flounder after sport ends. And there's definitely a period of mourning of what your life was or what it could have been and what you maybe missed out on and what you're going to do in the future. And so fortunately, the what I was going to do in the future um, at that point was just getting through each class. <laughs> but um, so I didn't have quite that existential crisis. But you do, it is like ending a relationship. So it has its own healing period afterwards. Speaking of that healing period, and I'm, I'm love to hear where your mind's at now, like, cause you, you don't become an, an elite athlete without being extremely competitive. So like how, wh- how do you channel, channel that competitiveness now? Oh man, I shut it off. <laughs> I, yeah, I was extremely competitive from a very young age, like probably from birth, honestly, very competitive, grew up with two older brothers. And like I said, my dad was very into sports. Everything in my entire life mentally was a competition. And then it was when I was actually in pharmacy school and I had retired. Um, Cause at that point I, I stopped swimming because I didn't like it anymore uh, for various reasons. One of them being that I just wasn't getting any better. I hadn't touched some of my best times in a couple of years. I, and I just didn't, excuse me, didn't enjoy doing it anymore. And so I thought, why would I keep doing this? And so I had, so with swimming, I'd obviously channeled my competitiveness to that, but I also had always channeled it into school and, you know, was very competitive about grades and all of that. And then pharmacy school, I felt very average. <laughs> um, I had some extreme extremely smart classmates, as I'm sure everyone feels in pharmacy school. And in order for me to not drive myself crazy, I actually had to just stop being competitive and just shut it off completely. Like I can't be competitive at all, or just kind of, it turns that drip into just like a waterfall and I can't, <laughs> I just keep under tight tight rain right now it's, um, it's such an interesting topic here and like i'm sorry like to harp on this but because like for me I, I obviously i never competed at such a high level but like i was competitive i could play sports in high school and i was always competitive mm-hmm. and for me that translated into schoolwork as well like i mean i wasn't like maliciously like you know trying to sabotage other people's like success in, in school but i was always trying to like get really good grades from a from a competitive standpoint like get into a good school all that stuff um, and now it's translating into, you know, into business and, and like, you know, the success of like companies that I'm, that I'm trying to, and brands that I'm trying to build. That's also like from a competitive nature as well. Um, I've never really thought about like, 
shutting that off. So it's interesting. But it's funny also, though, because I recently heard Mike Tyson talk about how, like, you know, him getting out of, like, fighting and, like, just being in, an, in another place because he wanted to, like, not have that mindset of that, that competitive nature. And then, like, I mean, I yeah. think he fought again recently, but still. But, like, it, it was, like, a huge period for him where he wanted to, like, he didn't even want to hit a bag because he didn't want to, like get any sort of sense of that that competition back so it's kind of really interesting to hear you mention it as well yeah well i always i was just wondering this about these like combat type sports where i feel like not all of them but a lot of them require also a certain level of anger to really fuel that competitiveness and i am not an angry person so i don't get that at all but i almost wonder if that sustained level of competitiveness and like low level of anger it carries outside of the sport sometimes and i wonder if that was also what you know made him take a break was that i haven't talked to as many combat uh, athletes i have other ones Uh, for whatever reason i just don't think they trained places i trained very much but i've always kind of wondered that if there is a like this kind of like low level of anger that comes out in other ways yeah that's interesting that's an interesting insight too i think that that makes a lot of sense yeah different than other sports yeah well definitely really fascinating one random question i had about training also is in swimming in a pool like is there physics behind training in like a in pool water versus like the ocean or freshwater, you know, salt water. Like, is there any like strategic training efforts that happen? Uh, there these- can be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I was very much a pool swimmer. Give me still water, black line, walls to do flip turns, all of that. But a lot of open water swimmers will train. They get tired of the pool because they they are the ones that train high, stupid high volume. Like they just do thousands upon thousands upon thousands of meters or yards. And I would go crazy if I did that amount in a pool. And so they will train open water. So lakes, um, oceans, all of that. And so I know with open water competition, there are differences uh, for various reasons. You know, you get currents, you get, you can, in those races, you can draft off of other people. Mm. You have to make turns around buoys. And so that's where you want to more like draft off of someone versus expending all of your energy. So it takes a lot of, a lot of strategies more similar to bike racing. I had you ever no watched. idea that there was drafting in water. Yeah. That's insane. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so actually if you that. train, you can be very, it can be very frustrating because you will be training. Like if you are able to be in a place where you can split a lane, sometimes you can draft off other people and it feels nice for you. It's not as fun for the other person, yeah. but <laughs> uh, that is a thing. And so you can open water. There's a lot more strategy like that. And I've seen, you know, there's obviously like ocean, but then I've seen people race open water in very clear lakes. And so I had a teammate who was very good at distance swimming. She didn't do a lot of open water, but she swam open water once at the 2010 world championships and her comment on it was, I could see the fishes. <laughs> so it was just this beautiful, clear water in Eindhoven. Yeah. And she just came out. She's like, I think there might be a fish in my swimsuit. This is very weird. <laughs> That's interesting. 
Well, yeah. for, just to quickly touch on, because I remember I did not know what drafting was until I started. Um, I did a cycling event um, when I was okay. in college. So drafting is basically, uh, do you want to explain it? I'm, I'm sure if you, you might be better. No, you go ahead. Okay. So go drafting, for, for me, when I first learned about what it was, and it was also mind blowing as well, was like if you are, you know, if you're running behind someone or you're biking behind someone, even this is a, a current, like this occurs in car racing as well. The person in front of you is like taking in all, all the physics of the resistance of the moving forward. And if you just get really close behind them, you don't have that resistance. So that's what's called drafting, which makes sense easily in, you know, in like if you're riding a bike or, you know, running or, or driving a NASCAR. But I had no idea that would have been applied. Those physics were applied in water as well. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think they might be a little bit different because um, it's water and waves instead of air, but similar concept, definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's where there's actually a S South African swimmer named Natalie Dutois, who uh, she was on track to be compete in the Olympics. And then I don't know if she just barely missed making the Olympic team in 2000 or if she had just had her accident. But either way, she didn't go to Sydney in 2000. And shortly around that time period, she was in an accident, lost her leg, became a Paralympic swimmer and competed in Athens, Beijing, and I wanna say that uh, London in 2012 was her last meet, but just a beast of a swimmer. And the best way I can explain that is that, so she's missing her leg, does not wear a prosthesis in the water, does not use any aids, and she competed in open water swimming got second at world championships, able-bodied in 2008 and competed in Beijing, the Beijing Olympics, open water swimming, wow. and then competed in the, the Beijing Paralympics pool swimming and just missing her leg and just enormous upper bodies. And so for her strategy was harder because buoys were hard. So turns are really hard if you don't have both legs to kind of turn around, but the advantage is she didn't have walls to worry about doing flip turns or starts or anything. So it's, um, yeah, I'd say the, the more distant swimmers and open waters have way more strategy. There's still strategy in the shorter pool races, but you know, it gets condensed down to like a minute instead of, you know, like four hours. <laughs> that's crazy. That's, that's wild. Well, uh, one of the uh, to wrap up here, I guess one of the one of the last questions I had was um, regarding kind of your experience. And I'm interested in like the dynamics of like athletes when you're um, at an event like the Paralympics, especially being that like it's it's about winning and, you know, it's about the competition. Everyone's extremely competitive, I'm sure. So what was like the atmosphere like at, at the event among among athletes? Um, It really for me varied by. Lo location. I mean, it's a lot of heightened, everything just feels heightened. And so wins are more exciting. Like when I broke the world record in the hundred butterfly, I got out of the water and I was just like chewing my fingers because I could not believe what happened. And I just kept talking to my, and like, I remember calling my parents and just being like, I, I did that. I did that. And you just feel everything. And then it was not, I think it was like two days later, um, I was swimming the hundred backstroke in prelims and I got disqualified. And so I, here I was, I got a best time. I thought I was going to go to finals. I would have been, I think in fourth place, fourth or fifth place going into finals. So very much in like metal contention. 
And then I had a coach try to break it to me that I'd been disqualified and I wasn't going to compete in finals. And I just went to the bathroom and sobbed. And that, um, and that time we were supposed to kind of stick together as a team. And I was just so kind of emotionally distraught that I just got back on the bus and went back to the Olympic village or Paralympic village. And I got back to my room and I was like, where is everybody? And I was like, Oh, everyone's still at the pool. So I called my coach and I just like, Jimmy, I did something stupid. He goes, why'd you do that? <laughs> and the answer is I had, you know, the day before, like my highest high or a couple days before, like the highest high. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, like at that time, what felt like the lowest low I'd ever felt. Um, and so just everything is very heightened. And then you're with your teammates, uh, lead, like most of them you've known for, um, if not months, at least some of them years, uh, I go way back with some of my teammates and have been with them from the very beginning. We'd all started about the same time. And so you've got these very, sometimes if you're lucky, like these really deep friendships and you're all kind of experiencing this heightened anxiety and anticipation all together. And then, you know, somebody has a low and somebody else has a low, but then these other people have highs and, I was just as happy for one of my teammates who got a medal that we didn't expect to medal as I, I was probably happier for him than I was for myself um, in some of my races. And so it's just like a constant level of heightened feelings. And so I think that's why a lot of people um, end up in the, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. I don't say relationships, but like you just feel extremely close to these people because you've gone through this very emotional heightened time together. And so you feel very, very, very close to people that some people you've known for a while, but other people you have only known for a few weeks. And you just feel this like deep connection. And it's not till after you get away that you're like, oh, I maybe don't really know that person very well. Or, um, or, or a lot of people get really sad after it ends because it's all this emotion and then just you go home and return to normal life without training. So you don't even have that to go back to sometimes because you're yeah. like, I'm going to take a month off. So Yeah, it's, and what's interesting because, you know, we always see when you see it on the, these events on TV, you just, you just see the events. You don't really hear about the things that happen before and after. So it's definitely interesting insight. Yeah, it's and I think it's being talked about more, especially I know Michael Phelps has talked about it afterwards like there's definitely this like post games depression that kind of sets in and for some people it's temporary to kind of get back into the groove of things for some people it lingers longer especially if they've retired and they maybe didn't retire on the terms that they wanted uh so there's it's uh it's basically a lot of emotion expressed through um athletic feats <laughs> yeah no i, I can imagine i mean you know, it, it makes sense though, you know, the extreme highs, you know, kind of, you know, potentially come with the extreme lows. I mean, it's just the nature of uh, being in that sort of like, in that atmosphere, I guess. Exactly. Even people like I don't describe myself as a very emotional person. And I wouldn't say that I cry very often, but I think I've cried at almost every swim meet. <laughs> like, or the major ones. Yeah. Uh, for I mean, whatever reason like sports is just like in general it's just so emotionally tolling i mean you're physically exhausted you're, you've put so much mental energy into it um you know it just i, I think that makes sense i mean especially being like and i can't i can only imagine like i've again like i've never competed at such a high level but even at like state 
competitions that I've been to and you just see people like that, you know, put their all into something and like something happens, whether they lose or whatever. Oh, like, absolutely. Just you see that yeah. team. Yeah. You see that team win, but then you, and you know, at that point you also see a team lose, yeah. even though they gave, you know, hopefully their best. Um, or sometimes people just have a bad day and they have to, you know, and it sucks that their bad day is on the biggest competition of their life, whether that's, um, state or nationals or the Olympics. And so the Olympics, it's just more visible. And I, I saw a tweet recently that was, I wish we could put an average person next to all the events so that all the people sitting on their couch at home saying I could do that, realize that they can't. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, and that reminds me of the I, thing with Serena. I, th I think it was, um, Serena Williams were, you know, someone in, in yep. Europe, some men in Europe had said like, oh, I can beat her at tennis or something like that. And then they actually did the video and they got like stomped like by Serena Williams. Yeah, exactly. Like no, there's no way. She's yeah, the best no in the world. What do you think? Like, not just for a woman, like she's extremely good. I would not want one of her uh, hits coming near me. Like, that's scary. <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of people, and it's easy to look at it because I, I've been saying this for years, Olympians make it look easy. And so I was friends with a lot of cyclists and I was like, Oh, I can go ride a bike. I can't ride a bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need training wheels. It's just not happening. And yet these people are zipping around velodromes with no brakes and you know, the person on the back can't even see like I, they make it look easy and it's not. So, yeah. But. Well, bonus question for you. If you had one person that you could take out to dinner, um, and that person has to be alive and famous. Who would that person be and why? Oh, that's an interesting question. And it can't yeah. be a, a current president or any of the past presidents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you get Barack Obama a lot. I yeah. bet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he just seems like a really chill dude. Yeah, right. Uh, um, I... Just because, I mean, it's unfortunate because some things have come out about the show recently that are maybe not as positive, but I think Ellen DeGeneres would be really fun. Mm -hmm. Like, I think she would, I would like to think it would be a funny, happy experience um, with lots of interesting stories. So, but, you know, there's been that talk about her show not being the greatest environment yeah i recently heard about all that i mean i don't know like any details whatsoever and i don't know what involvement ellen had but she definitely seems like someone that would be awesome to take to dinner and, and um like just talk yeah, about her she, career and experiences exactly the different interviews she just likes to dance and have fun mm -hmm. so i think that would be um somebody that's uh yeah just willing to talk not uptight i think yeah. she would be just fun well, Amanda, this was a fascinating conversation. I mean, I think I had only, I definitely did not think we would have gone, uh, we're closing in on an hour, I think, of, of talking. And um, it's been so, so much fun. I've learned a ton. Um, you know, I think I'm definitely going to be a lot more um, interested and, and want to watch a lot more of the uh, Paralympic Games now. And so I do thank you for your for your time and your insight. Um, anything else um, that maybe I might not have covered or anything else that you want to mention maybe about the games um, that we didn't talk about? Uh, I would just say, so the Olympic opening ceremonies for the Olympics are July 23rd, and then the Paralympics usually start a week or two after the Olympics end, because they have to clear out the village, 
get it all set up, cleaned out, and then move the Paralympians in. And I would just highly encourage everyone to watch it. It's, this is going to be the most airtime that any Paralympics has ever gotten. And so you'll find it on NBC. They have, I believe, their Olympic channel. Um, should be all over, um, more readily available than it has been in the past. So if it's on, I highly encourage people to watch it. It's a lot of fun. You'll see some crazy feats of human strength that you didn't even think people could do. Um, you know, the thing that comes to mind are there's a lot of swimmers missing both arms. So that's all core and legs and they mm. go way faster than you think that they can. Um, <laughs> so I would just say if you're flipping through channels um, after the Olympics end and you see a sport on, it's pr uh, hopefully not a recap of the Olympics. Hopefully the Paralympics just stop and watch it. Um, you know, we talked about goalball. There's all sorts of different sports in the Paralympics and I think they're all equally fun to watch. So check them out. I'll definitely be checking it out. Um, what is there any way that you would recommend and if anyone wants to connect with you, maybe on social media or email or something like that, um, what's, what's the best way for um, listeners if they wanted to connect with you to do that? Yeah, absolutely. If you have any questions or want to connect, my handle on Twitter is at a underscore elove. And my email is a period everlove at gmail.com. Shoot me any questions you may have, especially about swimming. I love to talk swimming. Um, now that I'm out of it, I like the, the more detail-y stuff of it. So <laughs> feel free to follow me, connect with me, chat. And I, I love it. And I will include all of um, Amanda's information in the show notes for anyone that's interested. Amanda, again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This has been fun. I hope you all enjoyed that episode as much as I did. So interesting to hear uh, what it's like to compete at such a high level uh, like Amanda did. And um, I really enjoyed her story. And, and I hope, you know, implore everyone to connect with her on social media. Again, all of her um, contact info will be in the show notes. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't yet. Connect with RX Radio on any of your favorite social media platforms. Let me know what you thought about the episode. Uh, one thing I do want to leave you with, and to quote Bradley Snyder again, Olympians show you what the human body is capable of. Paralympians show you what the human spirit is capable of. And I hope you enjoy watching the Paralympics this year, because I know I will. <laughs>